The TBI model system has been mentioned several times today, and I wanted to just give you an idea of what that is. That's a national program. It's funded through the National Institute of Disability Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research, which is part of the federal government. Welcome to the New Jersey Traumatic Brain Injury System Consumer Conference for Persons with Brain Injury. Moving forward, improving emotional, physical, and cognitive health for brain injury. A research update was presented by Dr. Nancy Chevrolati, Traumatic Brain Injury Research Director at Kessler Foundation. For more information about Dr. Chevrolati, read her bio in the program notes. This one-day conference provided individuals with brain injury, their caregivers, family, and friends, and healthcare professionals with information and insight into the strategies to successfully manage a range of challenges that affect overall health, wellness, and quality of life. The conference was hosted by the Northern New Jersey Traumatic Brain Injury System, a collaborative effort of Kessler Foundation, Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, and Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. The Northern New Jersey Traumatic Brain Injury System is funded by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institute of Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research, grant number H133A120030. This podcast was recorded, produced, and edited by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, on Friday, September 27, 2019, at the Hotel Westminster, 550 West Mount Pleasant Ave, Livingston, New Jersey. To listen to more conference podcasts, click on the link in the program notes for the playlist. Our last speaker of the day doing our research update is Dr. Nancy Cervellotti. Dr. Cervellotti is the director of the Center for Traumatic Brain Injury Research at Kessler Foundation and the project director for the Northern New Jersey Traumatic Brain Injury Model System. Dr. Cervellotti conducts research in cognitive rehabilitation, particularly in new learning, memory, and processing speed. She has led numerous randomized clinical trials to evaluate the efficacy of cognitive rehabilitation protocols in clinical populations, such as objective behavior from neuropsychological tests, everyday life questionnaires, daily tests of everyday functioning, and at the level of the brain, such as functional neuroimaging. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Cervellati. I'm here to tell you about our ongoing research at, at the foundation. I'm going to give you an overview of our research. We actually have a huge research program going on in traumatic brain injury in particular. So 30 minutes is really doesn't give me enough time to go through everything in any sort of detail. So I am going to be giving giving you kind of general information about what we're doing and why we're doing what we're doing. And I am going to give you a few specific examples of research that we have ongoing and why we do some of that research, what the big picture is. So the TBI model system has been mentioned several times today, and I wanted to just give you an idea of what that is. That's a national program. It's funded through the National Institute of Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research, which is part of the federal government. There are 16 centers funded nationwide, and that 
provides an infrastructure for all of our other traumatic brain injury research. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background on that. And then I'm going to move on to talk about areas of specific research at the foundation. And those include functional status, rehabilitation, imaging, caregiver health, and a little bit on cross-cultural influences. So first, let's talk about the TBI model system. The purpose of the TBI model system is to study the clinical course of individuals with TBI from the time they sustain their injury through rehabilitation care. So the data we collect begins with data that's collected in the ER. So we go back, we go to the acute care hospital, and we find out information about the actual injury. Then we move on and we follow people through the course of rehabilitation and then into the outpatient world, into the, into, back into the real world and their integration into society. We're looking to evaluate recovery and long-term outcomes. So we will attempt to call people for as long as they will allow us to call them to see how they're doing. And what we're doing is contributing to a national TBI database. Currently, that database has over 20,000 cases in it. So there are 16 centers nationwide. All of those centers are collecting this data. And this is something that has been being done since 1987. So there is a lot of very rich data. And some of the research-related topics that have been presented today were garnered from that national database. There are five components to any TBI model system, and these are things that we have to maintain in order to maintain our designation as a TBI model system. The first is exceptional clinical care throughout the continuum, and I'm going to go through these one at a time. The second is national data collection. The third is a specific research project. The fourth is modular participation, which I will explain, and then the fifth is dissemination. So first to talk about clinical care. All of you are familiar with Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. They are our major partner in the Northern New Jersey Traumatic Brain Injury Model System, which is what our system is called. In addition to that, we have four acute care facilities that we work very closely with. Morristown Medical Center, University Hospital in Newark, Hackensack University Medical Center, and St. Joe's Regional Medi Medical Center. So from those institutions, we're collecting data. Data is collected at several time points, so we have a lot of data. The first time point, as I mentioned earlier, is at the time of injury. So we are going, once somebody enrolls in the model system, they enroll in this project when they're an inpatient at Kessler Institute, but we go back to their acute care facility and we gather data as to what their initial injury was, any scanning that might have been done when they were in the facility, and those types of, of data. We also interview them and a family member when they're in inpatient rehabilitation. So we're asking questions like, what is your family situation? What is your socioeconomic status? Were you working? What type of an education might you have? What is your cultural background? We gather all that information from the very beginning. Then we follow people, and this is where, this is the tough part, because believe it or not, it's actually really hard to track people over time, especially in this geographic area, people move around. So we call everyone at one year post-injury, we call them again at two years post-injury, at five years post-injury, and then every five years thereafter. And that's really to follow them and to see what is your outcome? How are things going? Are you back to work? Are you pursuing educational endeavors? The purpose of that is we, we have this national database 
all of the investigators involved in the model system across the country, as well as other investigators, then use that database to answer questions that they might have regarding rehabilitation and facilit facilitating optimal outcomes. In addition to the national data collection, we are also required to conduct a site-specific research project. So this is just a standalone research project. Each of the 16 centers has their own, and we all work independently on this project. The recruitment is done at the center, so enrollment is only open to the patients that we see. Our site-specific research project is on cognitive rehabilitation, which probably doesn't surprise you because we do a lot of cognitive work at the foundation. Um, and some of the, the presentation that Dr. DeLuca, some of the information he discussed earlier is part of that um, cognitive rehabilitation program that we're testing as part of our site-specific research project. The last two parts of a TBI model system are actually, in my opinion, the most powerful parts of the TBI model system. First, I want to talk about the modular participation. Every center has to participate in at least one module, and there are 10 ongoing modules around the country. A module is a project that is done by at least three centers. So what that means is there's one research project that's going on in multiple places across the country. That's very powerful because it lets us collect data on a lot of people. And it's when you have a lot of people within one study that you're able to get the power, the statistical power, to be able to answer the questions that you can answer. In addition to that, being able to collect data in multiple sites makes your data more generalizable. So something that is true in New Jersey might, necessarily, might not necessarily be true in California. And when we collect data at multiple sites, it allows us to address that question so we can make our data more generalizable and answer questions that on a larger scale. So the modules that we are participating in for this particular cycle, and these are ongoing studies at Kessler. You, some of you may have been contacted to participate in them. Some of you may have already participated in them. So one of them we're looking at is, we're conducting is menopause following TBI. And what are the differences in someone who has had a TBI in going through menopause versus someone who has not? Another one looks at cognitive trajectories following TBI. So when you have a brain injury, your cognition changes. But then how does it change after that? and what factors influence what might happen in regard to your cognitive trajectory. Caregiver resilience is an important study that we're also conducting as part of our TBI model system. So the question here is what makes caregivers more resilient and how do we maintain that resilience over a period of time? Health literacy is another topic. So in regard to the available educational materials out there, are persons who have TBI able to engage in these materials equally and garner equal benefit from the materials that are available? And then finally, problem solving for caregivers. This is a study I'm going to be talking a little bit more about in a few minutes, because this is a study that's actually being done on our inpatient TBI unit to try to help caregivers adjust to their new role. The other part of the TBI model system that I think is incredibly important and very powerful is our dissemination component. So part of the funds that the federal government provides us 
are able to be applied to dissemination activities. So first is professional dissemination. This is the normal stuff that as research scientists we naturally do. So we present at national and international conferences. It's just part of what we do. It's part of the system we were raised in. We do local presentations, so we may go to support groups, we may do something at the Brain Injury Alliance at their conference, we, do the, we may do presentations at local hospitals to their staff or to consumers. We also write publications, we submit manuscripts and publish all the time and these are peer reviewed. We do podcasts and webinars and all of this is really focused on professionals, either other researchers or clinicians, but the really important part of the dissemination that we do through the TBI model system is our consumer dissemination. So the TBI model system provides us with the funds that allows us to put together our newsletter as well as our conferences. And that's really fantastic because that allows us to help contribute to the TBI community, to provide not only the information that we're learning, but information that others are learning around the world, such as what has been done today. And we're able to also hear from you in regard to what your struggles might be and what you think of where we're going. So this is our TBI newsletter. We have a new look for those of you who have seen the newsletter over a period of years. This used to be a paper newsletter that was mailed out. We redesigned it probably about four or five years ago, um, and it was, but it was still rather lengthy, a little bit hard to get through, so we redesigned it again. So now it is technology-based, so we send an email blast out, and there are links provided within that email where you can link to different articles, and you're able to see what different different topics. So you might see personal perspective, for example, is one of our um, regular columns. The most recent personal perspective was written by Richard Anderson about advocacy. So you may see, you also may see news releases, so things that have been recently funded, new research studies that we're engaging in at, at the foundation. So this is a great way for us to communicate with you and for you to communicate with each other because we do have patients write articles sometimes that really help strengthen that patient community. So if you are not receiving our newsletter and you would like to be on our newsletter list, if you can see either myself or Jeannie or Angela after the conference, we would love to add you to our newsletter list because it really is a great way of communicating. Okay, to move off topic a little bit, I just want to talk a little bit about our areas of specific research. So while the TBI model system forms an infrastructure through which we can conduct all of our other research studies, it is by no means the majority of the research that we do at the foundation. It's actually a fairly small part of the research that we do at the foundation. We have a large research program that cuts across several research areas, and I'm going to go through each of them briefly. So first is functional status. We have research studies ongoing that really focus on daily life. What are the changes in daily life and what influences those changes? Related to that are the research studies we have ongoing that look at cognitive deficits post-TBI. What are those deficits? And this may tie into some of our neuroimaging work as well, as well as how do those deficits impact daily life functioning, including the next bullet, which is employment. So what, what is the status of employment post-TBI? We know employment rates are low. 
Why is that and how can we influence that? And then finally, aging with the TBI. When you're aging, we know that our cognition declines as we age. We also know that cognition is impacted by TBI. So we have ongoing research that looks at the interaction between the two. We're rehabilitation-focused center, so obviously rehabilitation is a major focus of the work that we do, and this ties into functional status, because what we are trying to do through rehabilitation is improve functional status and improve everyday life. So some of the rehabilitation-focused work we're doing that really looks at treatment, looks at treating emotional processing deficits. We have work that looks at treating sleep disturbance, which is a big problem post-TBI. And then we also have research that looks at treating cognitive deficits through cognitive rehabilitation. Many of our research studies do that. We have imaging work ongoing through our TBI program. So we have a three-Tesla GE scanner at Kessler Institute, so it's right on the, the rehabilitation campus. And we're able to use that scanner for a variety of purposes. So the ongoing studies look at post-TBI fatigue, they look at cognitive changes, emotional functioning, they, we're looking for biomarkers of various aspects of TBI, but most importantly for much of the work we do of treatment efficacy. So the, and the imaging work looks specifically at treatment efficacy as well. So when we do a cognitive rehabilitation program, what are the changes at the level of the brain and how the brain is actually responding to that program? And Dr. DeLuca presented some of that data earlier today. But we're also looking at how the brain might change in response to such an emotional processing intervention or with fatigue or even with a treatment for fatigue. So that, those are some of the other ongoing studies that we're doing using our scanner. We also have work that focuses in on the caregiver. So we all know that the person who has the injury is not the only one impacted by this injury. The caregiver is a major player in this relationship and an overall outcome. So we, as I mentioned earlier, related to our TBI model system, we have a study that looks at resilience. And this is in persons who have, in more the chronic stages of TBI. So this is really in individuals who have had TBI for at least two years or more. We have a specific study that looks at problem solving training in caregivers of persons with TBI. So this focuses on the inpatient unit. And part of this, the focus of this intervention is to prepare the caregiver for the transition to home, which is probably one of the most difficult transitions any family unit has ever had to make. It's very hard to focus on that transition to home when you're in a TBI rehabilitation facility because there is so much effort going into rehabilitation in and of itself. So this research study looks at a training program to help people make that transition. In addition, we have a new study that's looking at novel ways of working through this transition to caregiver more in the chronic stages, and this is really through telerehabilitation. It's very difficult to get time in a caregiver's schedule very often because they're so overwhelmed at home that it's hard to have, a have time for them to come out and attend a group and get some group support. So we're looking at telerehabilitation as a way of doing that. So just to give you an idea, some of our recent findings in regard to caregiver health 
have identified that some of the resources we use that we might say are general caregiver resources really need to be patient specific, really need to be caregiver specific. So what that relationship is between the patient and the caregiver makes a difference. So a child caregiver may have different needs as compared with a parent caregiver and that is also, may, they, that person may have different needs as compared with a spouse caregiver. So that's some of the data that we're analyzing and looking at now. So I want to talk a little bit about the interaction between all these different areas. So it looks like we're doing a lot of different research that doesn't relate to one another. In reality, everything does tie in. So you have our functional status work. You have cross-cultural influences, which I really didn't talk much about. Dr. DeLuca talked about some of that a little bit this morning, but we have cross-cultural work as well that looks at the influence of culture on rehabilitation. We have caregiver health, which is an, an essential part of rehabilitation and facilitating outcome. And then we have our imaging work. All of that ties together with the rehabilitation within the rehabilitation domain. So we think about rehabilitation, and many of you probably do now also, as a lifelong endeavor. It begins at the time of injury, and it continues for the rest of your life. And you're, you want that rehabilitation process to continue to move forward. All of these other factors, all of these other research studies feed into improving rehabilitation and being able to facilitate better long-term outcomes. So now I'm just going to use the last few minutes to give you some study examples, some of the ongoing work that we're doing that really look at impacting rehabilita rehabilitation outcome. We focus a lot on what happens chronically, so years post-traumatic brain injury, because we know that rehabilitation continues for all of those years. But in reality, the work that we're doing and some of the research we're doing begins, happens at every stage post-traumatic brain injury. So the first stage is in the trauma center. And you might not think that we have any interaction with trauma centers because it's really not what we do. We focus on rehabilitation and beyond. But the tr what happens in the trauma center is actually very important to long-term outcome, and that's what we're starting to identify. So one of our recent studies had the purpose of looking at the role of a physiatrist on their trauma team. So a physiatrist is a physician that specializes in rehabilitation. You have a lot of physiatrists at rehabilitation hospitals such as Kessler. However, you generally don't see physiatrists in an acute care hospital. One of our acute care hospitals does have a physiatrist. And our question was, how does this impact outcomes? So many of you may ask, why is this important? Why did you waste your time doing this? Your job really happens once a person gets to rehabilitation. Well, the answer is, if we can identify the contributions of a physiatrist in the trauma center, and we can show that they actually make a difference in terms of long-term outcome, then maybe other hospitals might consider incorporating a physiatrist into their trauma team and hopefully facilitate long-term outcome. So this is a published paper, and this is what the data showed. Hopefully you can see the two graphs here. They're very similar. The two graphs are actually depicting scores on the FIM, which is a very common tool that we use to, to measure rehabilitation gains. The black line is gains that were made from patients that came from the hospital where there was a physiatrist on the trauma team. 
the dotted line represents gains that were made f by patients from hospitals where there was not a physiatrist on the trauma team. So what we see is from pre to post admission, that black line is steeper. So what we're showing is that when someone came from a hospital that had a physiatrist, they made better gains in rehabilitation. Now one of your questions may be, well, I can't influence that, so you know who cares? And the answer is, well, we publish this, we distribute this data to professionals. And what we're hoping is that hospitals start hiring that physiatrist and start incorporating rehabilitation from the time of injury. So next I want to talk a little bit about what happens during inpatient rehabilitation. Sorry, let me, oh, go ahead, you can answer, ask your question. Excuse me? What is a physiatrist? A physiatrist is a physician that specializes in rehabilitation. So a physiatrist is a doctor that you might have worked with in, when you were an inpatient at Kessler Institute. That's a physiatrist. They're generally not in trauma teams at hospitals. Excuse me? Oh, no, a physiatrist. I thought a podiatrist was a foot doctor. <laughs> I'm glad you asked the question then. You said one hospital out of the four had a physio, uh, whatever that was. Wh which one was it? It was university. Oh, okay. Okay, so let's go on to talk about inpatient rehabilitation. So what do you do in inpatient rehabilitation all day long, every day you're there? You learn. That's why you're there. You're there to relearn skills, right? So how do we learn? When you think about the learning process, we learn from feedback. So even when a child starts to pronounce words, they say a word and the adult will repeat it correctly. And the goal is for that child to then learn from example. They're learning from that feedback we're providing. So very often or most often when we provide feedback, we provide it immediately. So if someone does something, we immediately respond, and then they learn from that. This is something that is encouraged. Sorry, that went away. There we go. Um, this is something that is encouraged, whether it's in raising children or training dogs. We're always taught to provide feedback immediately. So some of the research that one of our scientists, Dr. Dobrikova, did prior to coming to Kessler looked at learning through feedback. What her data showed was that learning through feedback used different brain areas depending on whether that feedback was provided immediately or following a delay. So if you provide feedback immediately, so someone does something and you say correct or incorrect, that is processed through a brain area known as the striatum, which is that area that is in green. When someone is, is allowed a delay between the feedback and the, between the behavior and the feedback, that uses a different brain area, the lentiform nucleus, which is depicted in yellow. So when I talk about a delay, I just mean 30 seconds or a minute, a short delay. So why is this important? This is important because the striatum is often damaged when someone has a brain injury. So we are naturally providing our feedback immediately following behavior. That is being networked through the striatum. 
the striatum is damaged. It's therefore difficult for someone to learn through that feedback. So the context of the outcome presentation influences the brain mechanism that is being activated. So what does this mean about acute rehabilitation? What this is telling us is that if we circumvent this inability to learn from immediate outcomes by altering timing, we could potentially really improve someone's ability to learn new information, keeping in mind that what someone does in rehabilitation every single day, all day long, is learn. So if we can make that process more efficient, we can make rehabilitation more efficient. So what we have proposed is that if we present outcomes after a delay, we can improve the person's ability to learn that information. It activates a different brain network by switching from the striatum to the lentiform nucleus, and all we're doing is changing the way we perform, we provide feedback. We're simply changing the way we interact with the patient. We're not doing anything tricky. We're simply making the process go a little bit, a little bit differently so that they can learn better. So this is the research that was conducted in a healthy population the, then the, the scientist was able to get a grant from the New Jersey Commission on TBI Research. She's been collecting data on this for a series of about three years now, and she's now in the stages where she's finishing up her study and will be analyzing the data and writing that up in persons who have traumatic brain injury. So this is one of the really exciting lines of work that should be coming to fruition soon as she begins to analyze that data and write it up. So that's some of the work that we're doing impacting inpatient rehabilitation. Now last, we're running out of time, so I'm just going to go quickly through the research. We have a couple of research studies that impact chronic, the chronic stages of TBI, so post, two years post-injury. So one of the studies looks at impacting employment. So the purpose is to identify something we can change that impacts employment. And why is this important? If we can improve that characteristic, then potentially we can get more people back to work after traumatic brain injury. And this study really looked at frontal behaviors. So when I mean, what, I, what I mean by that is things like apathy. So when someone feels like they simply can't engage in an activity. Or disinhibition, when somebody, when somebody is disinhibited or they just react and they don't think before they react. So those types of behaviors. And what we see is that disinhibition in someone who is employed is better than in someone who is unemployed. So why is this important? This gives us an, a potentially modifiable factor that is something that we can then treat. So we've now identified a new factor, and our next step is now to identify an effective means of treating these symptoms. The end game here is to improve employment rates following brain injury, and that's where we're going with this line of work. To learn more about our research, go to KesslerFoundation.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts.